I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And welcome, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I I have so much pride in saying that. I'm so excited. This is like the Rivals equivalent of like the Godfather trilogy. It's long. It's complex. The villains keep changing. It's it's great. Yes. Buckle up. And we kept it at three because Graham Nash has generally been kind of like the passive player throughout the saga. You know, he's more like reactive rather than the aggressor. He just seems like, you know, the most decent guy. But the others have done more than their fair share of mudslinging. Uh, Today, we're going to look at how David Crosby has screwed over and been screwed over by the other members of this beloved musical collective. Yeah, Crosby to me seems like a good starting point because he's the one who is currently on the outs with everybody in CSNY. I I saw this quote recently where Neil Young said that David Crosby should write a book called Why Don't My Friends Want to Talk to Me Anymore? (laughs) Uh, Which is pretty brutal. But as we'll see as this series unfolds, Stephen Stills and Neil Young have also been very big agitators in this world. So like Jordan, I'm extremely excited to dig into those conflicts as well. Can I just say, though, at the start, how much I love CSNY? I mean, both as a band and as a soap opera, <laughs> they're all, like, such great songwriters and musicians. I mean, just think of, like, all the incredible, like, tunes these guys have given us. There's just, uh, like, a, such a long list. But they're also just, like, incredible divas. I mean, you won't find a more fascinating hive of bitchy characters than this one. Oh, yeah. Cross is by far and away my favorite member of uh, CSNY. He's just... He's one of the greatest characters in rock and roll history, right? I mean, he's hilarious, he's articulate, he's excessive, and he's probably second maybe to Keith Richards as like rock and roll's most unlikely survivor. I mean, the fact that he's above ground at all is miraculous. But 
Also, he's like more prolific than ever. His last couple albums have been amazing. And now he's this like Twitter Dear Abby figure. I mean, it's great. It warms my <laughs> heart, you know, even though the rest of CSNY apparently hates him. Yeah, you know, what's that line from The Dark Knight? You either die a hero or you live long enough to become a villain. <laughs> like, I feel like that's true of, of David Crosby. I mean, like, I had forgotten just how down and out he was at his lowest in the 1980s. Yeah, he did prison. He was in prison. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is a guy who literally had a room set up just off stage at every concert just so he could have a space to freebase cocaine between songs. You know, like... I mean, it's amazing and frankly a miracle that he lived this long to piss off his one-time friends well into their 70s. I can't wait to get into this, so without further ado, let's get into this mess. Oh, man. I mean, just so much to get into, but the perfect starting place is really back at the birds. David's time in the legendary folk rock group. Uh, That's a whole episode. One of the best bands ever. Oh, Incredible American rock band. I mean, that's its own episode later on, but we'll we'll go quickly through that. The birds, of course, folk rockers fuse the rich lyrical poetry of Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger with the uh, melodic sophistication and amplification of rock bands like the Beatles in the mid-60s. They had number ones with Mr. Tambourine Man, Turn, Turn, Turn. And I would say that the Birds were probably the most transformative of all the the proto-CSNY bands. I think that they had a huge hand in turning L.A. into a major musical hub in the early 60s. I mean, the Beach Boys did that a little earlier, but I think the Birds made L.A. cool, like on par with New York and San Francisco. And, you know, in the Birds, no one was cooler than Cross. You know, like I said, he was one of the great characters in rock and roll. He's He wore the cape. He wore the cape. All the newspaper, like, Profiles of him around the time have him like on his huge motorcycle with this. They called him Batman. He had this like big leather cape that he'd wear regardless of the season. Uh, Dennis Hopper famously modeled his character an Easy Rider after after Cross. I mean, he just you you knew him. You you saw him around and you knew that this this was somebody. And he, you know, he's hanging out with the Beatles. He had the best weed. Dated the prettiest girls. Knew the best people. What else did you need? I mean, he's like the prototypical rock star hedonist. And I think Stephen Stills later described him as like Brando. He had no boundaries, but also like Brando, <laughs> he was kind of kind of mercurial. Yeah, that's a nice way of saying it. I think a, a less nice way of saying it is that he was a huge egomaniac. <laughs> and it seemed like from the beginning, he was alienating his collaborators. And in The Birds, he was the coolest guy, but he acted like he was the coolest guy. And That's not cool. That's never cool. It's not cool. And the problem was is that he was not the leader of the band either. Roger McGuinn was the person who was in charge of that band. And I would also say that in terms of just talent, I think Gene Clark was the best songwriter in that Ooh. band. So even when you look at David Crosby, all that he's accomplished, I, I feel like he was maybe like the third ranked guy in The Birds, even though in a lot of ways, as you say, he was like this cool guy. He had a really high media profile. You know, there's this hilarious quote from Terry Melcher where he was asked once, of course, Terry Melcher is this record producer from the 60s. He uh, produced The Birds. He also worked with Paul Revere and the Raiders and a bunch of other 60s uh, rock bands. Someone once asked Terry Melcher who was the most difficult person that he ever worked with. And without blinking an eye, he said David Crosby. His number two choice was Charles Manson. (laughs) And keep in mind, Charles Manson tried to kill Terry Melcher, or he wanted to kill Terry Melcher. That's, you know, he lived in the house on Cielo Drive originally that the Manson family went and they committed all those terrible murders. So even compared to Manson, Terry Melcher thought that David Crosby was more difficult. Eventually, of course, David Crosby ended up getting bounced from the birds 
And there's conflicting stories about whether he was fired or whether, I mean, I think it's clear that he was fired, but wasn't there also a story that maybe he quit maybe at some point? I think there was like some sort of weird thing. Like I think Crosby kind of pushed the idea that he was treated unfairly by those guys. Yes, yeah, Stills would later try to rat out Cross and say like, yeah, he likes to say that he was fired, but uh, it was really more mutual agreement. I, I think it definitely helped Crosby's cred later on to be like, oh yeah, I, I, the birds couldn't handle me because by the sort of like 66, 67, the birds were sort of not seen as, as as cutting edge as they'd been sort of in 65, early 66. And I think he liked the idea of being like, oh yeah, no, I, I had moved beyond them. They were rejecting my songs. He famously put forward the song Triad, which is basically his ode to threesomes. And he loved to say that like, <laughs> right. oh yeah, McGuinn was way too square to, to, to handle a song like that. And McGuinn would later say, no, I, I, I rejected it because it, the song sucked. It was just a bad song. So yeah, there's Crosby likes to make himself out to be this outlaw who was, was kicked out of this like squeaky clean LA plastic pop band. But yeah, it seems more like they were just diverging. One story I love from that time is uh, about the cover of the Birds album, the, the Notorious Bird Brothers, which is a great Incredible record. record. It was the first record that the Birds put out after Crosby was bounced out of the band. And on the cover, it's McGuinn, it's Chris Hillman, Michael Clark, the drummer, and there's a horse. <laughs> when David Crosby saw that cover, he thought that the horse was supposed to represent him and so he was very insulted by that. McGuinn denied it, and he said, yeah, if we meant it to be Cross, we would have had the horse turn around so you just saw its backside. <laughs> it's just incredible comeback. You know, my theory about David Crosby, and I, and I feel like this will, uh, I think, be borne out as we get into this episode and we, and we talk about all of his experiences over the years, is that he's at heart, you know, this kid that craves attention. You know, he's like the little boy maybe who was, I know that he had a difficult relationship with his father. I don't think he ever got the attention he really needed uh, from that paternal figure. And it seems like he will do anything to get the attention that he craves, even if it involves throwing his bandmates under the bus. Like, I was reading uh, David Brown's book about Crosby, Stills, Dash, and Young, which is an incredible book, by the way. Uh, you should definitely go check that out. And there's a story in there where he's talking about, it, it's like one of the many times that Crosby tried to go through rehab in the 70s. And there was a psychologist that uh, did an analysis of him. And the conclusion was, is that David Crosby is a person who is perpetually dissatisfied and can't derive any contentment from his relationships. And that line really struck me as being profoundly sad, but it seems like that explains him in a lot of ways. Like he's a self-destructive person in his own life. And, and I think in a lot of ways in his relationships, there, there's something in him that just has to kind of throw a monkey wrench into even a good situation. Yeah, he definitely thrives on chaos. And for the reason you mentioned, probably just attention-seeking behavior. And it shows up again and again. And then you add tragedy later on, as we'll see when we talk about the death of one of his girlfriends. That's just catastrophic. And that sends him off down this this horrific trail of drug abuse and uh, and yeah. personality clashes. But but that's why he's so good on Twitter, <laughs> you know, because he's a, he loves attention. Like, that is like a godsend for somebody like him. If only Twitter had existed in 1969, maybe a lot of this could have been avoided. Can you imagine? I mean, McGuinn and Cross now on Twitter are pretty hilarious, but can you imagine them in like 66, 67 going at it, talking about like, you know, triad or something? Well, Crosby blocked McGuinn oh, did? on Twitter. Yeah, because I think, well, McGuinn is a born-again Christian right. now, and he was trying to preach to Crosby. So, you know, maybe you could say Crosby was justified in that respect, but yeah. I mean, that's another rivalry we could talk about, Crosby and McGuinn. But, you know, we digress. We should get back to the CSNY story. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so, Cros, it's 66. He meets 
Graham Nash, of course, the person who introduces them, the the, the sort of the, the leading light, the patron saint of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young is Mama Cass, Mama Cass Elliot of the Moms and the Papas. She introduces Graham. She, she was a real Anglophile in the 60s. And uh, when the Hollies came to town, Graham Nash's band, uh, she said, oh, I really want you to meet my, my friend Crosby, David Crosby. So she drives him up to his little bungalow in Laurel Canyon. And, uh, and Crosby has this real, like, very, very visceral first impression of Crosby just sort of laying on the couch, rolling joints without even looking. He can just do it just by touch and carrying on full conversations with people. And I thought I remember in Graham's book that that was the first time he ever got high, which sounds kind of crazy, but I don't know. I like, I oh, like wow. to believe that Cros was the guy who got him high for the first time. Maybe I'm wrong. They became pretty close. They hit it off, and they would visit each other when they were in their respective cities. And they both kind of occupied similar roles in their band. Graham was really fed up with his uh, lot in the Hollies, who were hugely successful, an incredible harmony band, but probably one of the most lightweight British invasion groups that I can think of. Great, great pop. I mean, songs like Carrie Ann with that kick-ass steel drum solo, like Bus Stop, incredible songs, but they weren't really, they didn't have a lot of, of lyrical and emotional heft. And Graham... Yeah, just all about harmonies. Right, right. And Graham was trying to sort of push them forward. He wrote a song called King Midas in Reverse in 67, which was a, a little bit deeper. It was kind of like, you know, everything you, you touch turns to, to, to stone. Everything he touched. That's how he sort of felt about the pop world at that time. He was at a very unhappy part in his uh, point in his life. And, you know, pop songs are generally happy if they're not about like a breakup or something. And there's the song sort of about existential angst and uh, with this really complex production arrangement. It almost sounds like Strawberry Fields or something, this big, elaborate orchestral thing. And the song tanked. It sort of confused their listeners. And Crosby had sort of gone through that himself in The Birds. He'd had a song, uh, his first Birds A-side was called Lady Friend. And it was very different than the Birds' material. It was sort of louder and faster and rockier. It sounded like sort of like a totally different band. And that also tanked. So they both were kind of like trying to pull their bands forward in just in a musical sense and help them progress. And the fans and the rest of the band weren't really going for it. And in the same way that the Birds passed on David's triad, the Hollies were passing on some of Graham's newer songs like Marrakesh Express they tried to do with the Hollies and they just weren't feeling it and they abandoned it. So they had a lot to talk about. It's funny to me that like Marrakesh Express was considered like too edgy for the Hollies because that's like a pretty lightweight song. I was <laughs> like, whoa, this this is too edgy, man. This is like too revolutionary. This song about like, you know, going to Marrakesh right. and having like this fun adventure. So yeah, when you look at the early days of CSN, Crosby is certainly, I think, the pivot point between Nash and Stills. Like he's bringing these guys together because while he's hanging out with Graham Nash, he's also getting to know Stephen Stills. And at that time, Stephen Stills, of course, was one of the main artistic forces in Buffalo Springfield, who I think in many ways you could say were a rival band or maybe even like a, a successor band to the birds. They came around a little bit later. They were starting to become this hip local band at a time when, as we said before, the birds were starting to fade a little bit. And Crosby being this attention-seeking glory hound, essentially, <laughs> you know, he knew what time it was and he started cozying up to Buffalo Springfield. And he actually ended up playing with that band at the Monterey Pop Festival because Neil Young, the other main creative force in that band, he started flaking out around this time. He he didn't want to play Monterey Pop. He famously bailed before a high-profile appearance on the Johnny Carson show when Buffalo Sp Springfield would have been the first rock band to ever play on Carson. Neil Young basically bailed 
before they were supposed to tape that, which would, of course, be very prescient for how Neil Young would, would behave in the future. So he's starting to cozy up the stills, and, and they're starting to talk about also having some sort of musical union. And can I just say that, like, Stephen Stills is, like, my favorite member? You, you said at the start that David Crosby is, is your guy in this group. I'm a huge Stills fan, and uh, we'll talk more about that in our next episode because Stephen Stills is going to be the focal point that time. But, yeah, I, I mean, is it fair to say that Crosby is most responsible for these guys coming together? I would say so, yeah. I mean, he, he and Stills... We're trying to make a duo after after Crosby got fired from the Birds and Stills uh, after Buffalo Springfield was done. They were a duo called the Frozen Noses, which was a yes. a cocaine reference, which is some nice foreshadowing there. Um, it's like pretty early too to be making a cocaine reference. I, know, I mean, right? like sixty eight, like they were ahead of the curve. They were doing blow <laughs> before a lot of people, and they would do more blow than a lot of people right. as the seventies unfold. Drug using pioneers. That's absolutely true. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, because I stills didn't really know Graham very well, but there's a famous story in uh, before Graham left the Hollies. This would have been, I think, in February of '68. The Hollies came to LA and played the Whiskey a Go Go, and uh, Stephen and Cross showed up as kind of like cheerleaders. They would later say they were in the front row cheering and getting everybody all pumped for the Hollies, who were you know not that cool of a band. And after the Hollies did their show, they all crammed into uh, Stills' car, Stills, Crosby, and, and Graham. And they're, they're driving around talking, and I guess Graham went to the bathroom or something, and, and Crosby goes to Stills and says, okay, which one of us is going to get him? They both wanted to work with Graham early on. But yeah, I think that Cros was definitely the linchpin between the two. Yeah, and there's that famous story where I feel like it's changed depending on who's telling it about like the first time that they sang together. I've heard that it was like at Mama Cass's house. I've heard it was at Joni Mitchell's house. I don't know if there's like a definitive version of that story. All I know is that they started playing the song You Don't Have to Cry, which was a Stephen Stills song and ended up on the first Crosby, Stills, and Nash record. And it seems like they hit upon that like iconic harmony sound pretty quickly. Yeah, I always love the fact that for a band that fought so much, they can't even agree on the first time they sang together, which you would, would think they, they all have very, very like like photographic style memories of how they believed it went down. And they're all different. All three are different. The one that's most commonly said it was at Joni Mitchell's house. Uh, Graham had just come from London right from the airport and he arrived there and, and Stephen and David were, were there and they wanted to play some of their, their Frozen Noses material for their friend Graham. And he asks them to sing the song, You Don't Have to Cry Again. And he's listening to it. And then Graham asks him to sing the song a third time. And Cross and Stephen are like, what, what the hell is he, want? you know, what's he doing? Like, I know the song's good, but three times in a row, Jesus. So they start singing it a third time and Graham has copped the lyrics by this point and he sings and he adds his top level harmony. And yeah, they would always say that Crosby, Stills and Nash was just born in that moment at this at this little dinner party at, at Joni or Mama Cass's house, depending on who's telling the story. And yeah, that was really where it started. Yeah, and you know, speaking of Joni Mitchell, she was involved with David Crosby early on. He ended up like producing her first record. They they were sort of a thing. I don't know how serious that was, but it was at least a fling of some sort. And then Graham Nash comes along. And Graham Nash, you know, I've read a lot of CSNY books. He has this reputation for being a ladies' man, essentially. Like he's got the British accent. He's a pretty good-looking guy. He is not a raging egomaniac, at least not to the degree that the other guys in the band are. So he's like pretty charming and sensitive. And he swoops in and he ends up just sweeping Joni Mitchell off her feet. So it seems like Crosby was fairly cool with that. He's like not really protested about that too much over the years. But again, you see like this is another sort of premonition of what's going to happen in this band because there's going to be other 
conflicts over women that occur you know right. in this group but you know what's fascinating about the name of the band is that you know they weren't the birds they weren't buffalo springfield they didn't adopt like a band moniker they put their names in the name of the group and that was a very deliberate decision because they were all used to being in bands and all of the ups and downs that you experience and things like that and also knowing that when you are in a band if someone leaves it's very easy to replace them and the idea was that we're going to put all of our names in the title of the band because no one is replaceable and it also shows that we're all individuals at the same time i have to say too that you know again looking ahead that I feel like that band name benefited David Crosby the most, especially as we look ahead to the 1980s, because during that time, he became a real liability in the group, where on their records, they were subbing in other singers for him, essentially, but like they had to put his name on the title card or they couldn't get record deals, essentially. So, you know, it's like if they hadn't have been called that, you know, if they had just been the Frozen Noses or something... Yeah, I wonder if Crosby would have been the first one replaced. Wow, yeah, that's a good point, too, because I always view their name as sort of almost like, you say that it was a way to sort of protect them and make sure that they were all, none of them was expendable. I almost thought it was the opposite, where it made the band a lot more amorphous and people could sort of come and go as they please. And like, okay, oh, maybe this next album is going to be Stills and Nash, or maybe the next one is going to be Crosby and Nash, or maybe the next one is going to be Stills and Crosby. And I, I almost thought of it as being sort of like an open relationship because they both, they all had had such horrible experiences in their prior bands, and that this was sort of like a way of, of not labeling the band. It was just themselves and the next, you know, the next time around. And I guess this would happen in the seventies too, with the Stills Young Band and all the, the Crosby Nash albums and stuff. So I guess it worked both ways too. It protected them as a as an entity that, that they weren't replaceable, but it also made the band a lot more fluid. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. 
Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So as we head into that first record, that iconic Crosby, Stills, and Nash record where they're all sitting on the couch out in front of that house uh, in, in Los Angeles, I feel like we maybe should dig deeper into that in our Stills episode because Stills really was the driving force of that record. And obviously Crosby and Nash made vital contributions in terms of their songs, you know, with Crosby, specifically the songs Guinevere. He co-wrote Wooden Ships. He was a writer on Long Time Gone. Obviously a big part of that record. But it seems like the making of that record was relatively smooth because Stills was the one in charge and Crosby and Nash were willing to go along with what he was doing. And then things started getting a little weird when they had to come around to touring because Stills played all the instruments on the record, essentially. And then they had to bring in another musician to you know sort of round out their live sound. And that's how Neil Young ended up in the band. And that's a huge drama. I feel like that's more of a still-centered drama, though. I mean, do we want to get into that in this episode, too? Yeah, that's definitely more about stills. I, I love how stills would later refer to uh, Neil as the snake, as in the snake that they led into their, like, Laurel Canyon Garden of Eden, which I thought is pretty unfair. I don't know. It's like, you know, <laughs> you invited him, first of all. Well, you know, and look. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I feel so bad for Stills on some level because I feel like Neil Young has traumatized him yes. oh, many, yeah. many times like in their relationship, even though now they seem like pretty cool. You know, again, like it seems like the other guys in this band at this point all like each other. And the thing that unites them is hating Crosby. Like they all hate Crosby <laughs> or at least like they're distracted by their other like, if Stills does have feuds with Neil Young or, or vice versa, it's not taking precedence over, like, the anti-Crosby sentiment at this time. But, again, that's we're getting ahead of ourselves. There's so much to discuss in this story. I think next in this timeline with Crosby, we have to talk about the Christine Hinton story, his, uh, his girlfriend who died. Was that in 69? Yeah, that was right before they started recording Deja Vu. And, I mean, it, just this absolutely heartbreaking story. I mean, she was... Crosby's, this is going to sound terrible, his main girlfriend. He obviously, he, he was very into the free love thing at this time, but very, very, very close to her and loved her a great deal. And she was, I guess, driving a VW bus with some kittens that they had either rescued or just got to the vet. And one of the kittens scratched her and she instinctively swerved the wheel and swerved and crossed the center lane and drove into uh, into oncoming traffic. And what a weird way to, oh. to die. I'm sorry. It's like, it's a, it, that's why I'm a dog person. <laughs> you know? It's the most Cats. like flower child way to die. This is heartbreaking. It's terrible. It, yeah, it's like a it's like if Stephen King wrote like a oh flower God. child story or something. It's like a very Stephen King type thing. It's awful. 
And she was 21 years old. Oh, I mean, she was just a kid. Yeah. And, and Crosby, it really, that I think is the thing that sent him off into this, this path that would lead to free basic cocaine on the side of the stage. I mean, he would say in his, uh, in the documentary from 2019, Remember My Name, he would say there was just this emptiness after she died. It was like a rip in the fabric in an empty place. And it leaves a big hole where you just want to fill it. And he would spend much of the next two decades just kind of filling it with with heroin and, and cocaine. He said it was it was a painkiller. It really just numbed him and, and helped him pretend that nothing had happened. That really, I mean, he was in really rough shape. I guess Graham and, and Mama Cass took him to, to London for a while, tried to get his mind off things. And they wouldn't even let him go to the bathroom on his own. He was basically on like suicide watch at that that period. And, and this spilled over into sessions for Deja Vu and he was just really barely functional, like in tears on the mic. Yeah, and, you know, and keep in mind, you know, the first Crosby, Stills, and Nash record comes out, and it's a huge hit, and, you know, there's uh, there's stories about how that album was essentially, like, the soundtrack of Los Angeles in 1969. Like, you couldn't go into a head shop or the grocery store or anywhere in L.A. without hearing those songs over and over again. So they're a huge band. They're the biggest band in America, basically, at that time. So there's a lot of anticipation for Deja Vu. Of course, they've added Neil Young into the mix. And Neil Young really wasn't that big of a star yet. He would become a big star because of his association with this band. But as they're recording that record, in contrast with the first album, which, again, it seems like that went relatively smooth. You know, there was the novelty of working together. It seems like they weren't arguing as much. Now they go into Deja Vu, and it's the old story about, you know, people getting a little bit of money and notoriety. The egos start coming into play. You have Neil Young entering the picture, and he has a much different way of working. He's challenging Stephen Stills' authority. Again, we're going to get more into that in our next episode, the the Stills versus Young psychodrama going on. But (laughs) as it pertains to Crosby, it seems like Stills, like, he was not all that understanding of like the pain that Crosby was going through at this time. Like Stills is like this perfectionist taskmaster and he is um, just making Crosby go through the paces on the record. He's demanding perfection. Like I think on the title track, he made Crosby play that song like a hundred times. Like they did a hundred takes of that song. It's a very tricky time signature. And there was also the, the conflict over almost cut my hair where Stills was just like, this song's too sloppy. And also, I have to say that, like, I don't know how you feel about this. Almost Cut My Hair. I kind of like that song, but it's also, like, pretty dumb, like, song, <laughs> lyrically. Like, that line where he's like, must be because I had the flu for Christmas and I'm not feeling up to par. It increases my paranoia. Like, looking out my mirror and seeing a lit up, and he says, police car. It's like, come on, dude. But anyway, you know, but at the same time, it's like, hey, Stills, go easy on Cross here, man. He's, like, just lost his girlfriend. It's a pretty terrible time for him. In his very Stills way, he tried to kind of make amends. He, he wrote him a song called Do For The Others, which I don't think didn't wind up in the album. Actually, I don't know where. It might have been a bonus track later on where he wrote it for Crosby to sing. And it was basically about, it had lines, portrays Crosby as cries with the misery, lies, sing in harmony before coaxing him to borrow the life of his brothers. It was kind of like, you know, lean on your brothers for strength kind of song, which was his way of trying to distract Crosby, I guess you could say, with work, which is a very stills thing to do. Even <laughs> right. get him back on the mic with something that he might might relate to. I mean, I always whenever I think of their relationship, I think of that footage that is in every Crosby Stills and Nash documentary of Crosby in a hammock just kind of lying there with a joint hanging out of his mouth and stills hanging over him, just being like, I'm not gonna give in an inch to fear. You know, I've been waiting for you for two days, you asshole. And he's just like berating Crosby. I, I don't know what caused the fight, but I can use my 
my imagination that their working methods are so different. I mean, Stills, well, like you yeah. said, is the guy who was in the studio for 18 hours a day or, or, you know, and then later in the 70s. Well, not even that. I mean, from what I've read, it was like 24 hours a day. Like, he right. would go on these benders, like, where he would be in the studio around the clock for, like, five days. And, like engineers would come in and out of the studio essentially because he would not stop working i mean i've seen that confrontation you're talking about and i just look at it as like an example of two different types of drugs at work like to me crosby <laughs> is pure weed you know he's on the hammock and stills is just like uncut merc cocaine you know <laughs> just a hundred miles an hour and uh you know that's going to come Freight into conflict train. but uh, the other thing with Cros at this time too and i wanted to get your take on this because you know, we both have seen the documentary uh, Remember My Name came out in 2019. Like, really great documentary about David Crosby. One of the things that struck me about that movie, though, is that, like, they spent a lot of time talking about the song Ohio, which ended up, you know, that came out in 1970, of course, right after the Kent State shooting and uh, ended up being this iconic Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song. But I feel like Crosby, whenever he talks about that song, it's almost like he wants to take partial credit for writing it. Because he always tells a story about like how he told Neil Young that he should write a song about this. And like he showed him, I think it was like the cover of Life magazine with the Kent State, that famous Kent State photo. I don't know. I just look at that at, at, like as another example of him maybe kind of glomming onto something that someone else did. Because like, Neil Young wrote that song. Like David Crosby didn't write that song. But I mean, am I being too hard on him though in that respect? To hear Cross tell it, he makes it sound like he spoon-fed the lyrics to Neil, who just kind of like basically edited it and they went from there. But yeah, Cross always makes it seem like it was his idea. He made the call, okay, we should all say something, get into the studio right now. We're gonna we're gonna work this out right now. I don't think it really went down like that, but I think that that, that song, I think more than definitely more than like almost cut my hair or something like that, or Long Time Gone, which is written after RFK was killed. I think Ohio cemented CSNY as politicized. They weren't just like kind of Laurel Canyon hippies, like flower children. Like it actually made them figures that stood for something. And I think as the years went on, the reputation of the song Ohio is, is grown for that reason, that, that so much of the substance of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young rests on that. And I can see why Crosby would want to have a piece of that legacy and be responsible for it because it that was their platform. Right. And, and I think he does deserve credit for, like you said, like he was, um, I think, the driving force in recording that song so quickly and getting it out. And there's that part at the end of the song where he starts yelling, how many more? And you can hear the emotion in his voice. And that is, I think, the emotional peak of that song. I think you're right, though, in terms of like their political reputation. Ohio is like a big reason why people look at them as, you know, being like protest singers. And I, I do think that's, a, that's probably the best protest song outside of maybe Fight the Power by Public mm. Enemy of like the last 50 years. I mean, that's an incredible song. But when I think about David Crosby, like his musical sensibility, I think more about like his first solo record, if I can only remember yeah. my name, which I think is like one of the great like vibe records of all time. Like you put that oh. album on and you feel like, okay, I know what it was like to be super high in LA in 1971. And, you know, the strength of that record is not lyrics. I mean, there's, like, songs that don't even have lyrics. It's just, like, Crosby saying, like, la, 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 the entire song, like, literally. I think there's, like, a couple songs like that on that record. But um, I actually think that's a strength of that album. Like, it doesn't need a lot of lyrics. It Again, it's more about, like, the feeling and the vibe of it. And, you know. It's a hammock record. It's the perfect record to have on when you're in a hammock. It is. It is gorgeous. I mean, yeah, the song without words. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, laughing is incredible. 
And then, of course, you've got the cowboy song, which is like an eight-minute or nine-minute, like, mythical retelling of the the Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young story to date, which is is pretty hilarious, too. But, uh, oh, my God, yeah, that album is, is gorgeous. And he got some incredible people on there, too, right? I mean, he got Nash and Young. He got Jerry Garcia. He got Joni Mitchell. I think he had members of uh, of Santana and Jefferson Airplane on there. The thing that's amazing to know about that album, too, is that it was really done— to kind of help him through the grief of losing Christine Hinton too. So to hear this beauty that he made from this really, really dark place kind of makes it all the more astonishing. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting too that like Crosby was making a solo record at that time and all the other guys were making solo records because essentially after, you know, making the first Crosby, Stills and Nash record and they put out Deja Vu, which ended up being an enormous hit. You know, they went on that tour in 1970 and I mean, it seems like that was a pretty miserable tour and like i think after that tour in 70 they were like okay we need to be a part we need to like make our own records now yeah i'm kind of amazed that that tour didn't like finish off the group for good forever or at least for like you know 40 years or something yeah it was it was pretty miserable steven stills had fired their bassist for reasons that were really like basically political because he was getting tight with neil neil uh retaliated by demanding that they fire the drummer who was tight with steven this led to a huge fight with Cross and neil there was a, a the opening night on the tour. Um, I guess Stills had gotten into a horse. He fell off a horse. <laughs> right. He, he fell off a horse and he came on stage with like a body cast or something or on crutches. He was on crutches and he was just like out of it all night. And I'm, I'm guessing, and we'll probably get into this more on the Stills episode, that he kind of felt his hold on the group slipping. And he was just all over the place. Like he, he's backing uh, Neil on on Helpless and like playing piano and just like played all over him. And then when Crosby goes to introduce Stills for his solo set, Stills is just like nowhere to be found. It was, yeah, a miserable tour. Uh, came to a head in New York when um, every band member had a little mini solo set in their show. I think they did like two songs a piece. And during this one night, Stills just like kept going. And that really pissed off the rest of the band. I think there was like a physical like battle royale backstage after the show was over. And yeah, that really kind of like is the defining moment of that tour, I think. And um, what's worse is that Stills and Graham were fighting over a woman. They were fighting over uh, Rita Coolidge, the incredible singer, uh, who Crosby, and this might have just been the cocaine uh, or really bad weed, either or, uh, believed her to be some government agent. That was sent by Nixon. To yeah, kill yeah, perfectly him. reasonable. I think he was stone cold sober when he came up with that. I mean, I think it seems pretty, you know, <laughs> on the on the money. Yeah, yeah, he's like terrified. Of, it's like, man, like, can you imagine being a woman coming into this situation? Like these poor women that like had to deal with these like lunatics. Because yeah, like Stills was into Rita Coolidge, but she was more into Nash, and then like the other guy thinks that you're, you know, like J Edgar Hoover. You know, it's just like insane. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like in a way, like, you know, that, that CSNY um, world, it had this, like, inherent toxicity that didn't nece- necessarily translate, like, when, say, like, Crosby and Nash worked together. Because, like, they actually, like, ended up making a bunch of records together, David Crosby and Graham Nash, uh, like, through the early 70s that I think are actually, like, pretty good. Like, the, the first one in particular, Graham Nash, David Crosby is what it's called, I think has some great songs on it, like Southbound Train. Page 43, Frozen Smiles, a bunch of really good songs. And it seems like those two guys had a genuine friendship that I don't know if, like, 
that they had with the other guys in the bands. Yeah, like I feel Any like the those two guys yeah. um, really liked each other. And also they just worked together musically. Their voices, of course, just fit together so well. I mean, that is really the core of like that harmony sound. I mean, like Stills, I think, is like, I think pretty clearly the third best singer out of those three guys. I mean, the, the, like his voice, I think, has some cool qualities to it. Like I said, I'm a huge Stills fan, but in terms of just like pure harmony, you can't beat uh, Crosby and Nash. And, you know, as we said at the top, we're not doing a separate episode on Nash because I think Nash is like the the nicest guy in this band. He hasn't really instigated a lot of conflicts. Although in a way, I feel bad that we're doing what, what I think a lot of people overlook Nash when they look at this band. Like they don't give him his props for essentially like writing their biggest hits and, and you know, being like the pop star essentially in the group. But I think another reason why we're not talking about Nash separately is that him and Crosby, they had like a lot of their adventures together until, of course, they ended up having a very decisive break uh, later on, which we'll get to later in this episode. But it seems like like throughout the 70s, you just see this like sort of off and on thing of like CSNY getting back together and falling back apart. And around 73, 74, they started to come back together again. Yeah, their commercial like fortunes had kind of fallen. Uh, Stills had just done the second Manassas album, which was kind of everyone viewed as sort of a disaster. Uh, Graham Nash's second solo album, uh, Wild Tales, kind of got ripped apart. Uh, Crosby didn't have another solo album for many years, I believe. Um, and then Neil's post-Harvest work wasn't selling up to expectations. So they they ended up uh, reuniting in um, in Maui uh, to try to work on very early stages of a new Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young album that they tentatively called Human Highway, which has become sort of semi-mythical for its... Uh, it's almost like their smile. There's tons of songs that were up for consideration at that point. Uh, also extremely dysfunctional. I, I, the sessions kind of fell apart. Uh, Graham suspects it was some kind of weird cocaine deal thing that, that went awry. But yeah, it just they, they ended up going their separate ways until they came together the next year uh, for what's yes. been called the Doom Tour I love in 1974, Tour. which was when, oh my God. Well, because this was the year after... Uh, Bill Graham, the, the music impresario, got Bob Dylan year, back I on think. the road I think, I think, uh, for the first yeah, time. Yeah, Dylan and the band were early in 74, and then this Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young tour was like the summer. And it was like, I think it was like the first stadium tour. Like there had been stadium shows that, you know, the Beatles obviously played some shows at Shea Stadium in the 60s, like Grand Funk Railroad played uh, at Shea. But like in terms of like a series of stadiums, I, I, I'm pretty sure that the Doom tour was the first example of that. And yeah, I mean, this was, I, I, it just came, became synonymous with like excess in the 70s, not only because of what the musicians were doing backstage, including like David Crosby. Like, wasn't this the period like where Crosby was like traveling with, with two women at once? And like, like he, he basically just had like a harem around him that was like, he didn't even try to hide it. Like it, it, he was just known that he was like having like, you know, like three-way sex every night, essentially, is just like, that was like his, you know... Every night, in the middle right, of meetings. It was in the middle of meetings? I think, like, people, he would come in and, like, talk to people, and then, like, midway through the conversation, people would realize that, that he was getting, a like, a blowjob underneath the table or something like that. Like, that that level of depravity, I, I believe, is, is what we're talking with with Cross at this era. I mean, the, the phrase cocaine-fueled gets tossed around a lot, but I think that's really the only way to put it for this tour. I mean, it was really... This was... The one where he like freaked out a hotel manager because his room was too breezy, I think. I think this was the same era. 
Yeah. My favorite part is that, I mean, for all the excess and there's stories of them like spilling cocaine on rugs and then all falling to their knees and huffing the rug and stuff like that. The item that all the members tend to cite for being like the ultimate excess of this tour are these right. silk pillowcases where they had Joni Mitchell's illustration embroidered on them. And I'm just like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that cost some money, but like, how about the time like Stills got a private jet to like fly in his favorite yeah, beer? Yeah, it was Coors. He wanted a six well, pack of Coors. Coors. <laughs> so he like chartered a private jet and had like Coors brought to him. And I think like in the 70s, Coors was maybe sort of like a, like a more of a boutique beer, but still, yeah, that's just insane extravagance. Yeah, there's a there's a figure that like they made something like eleven million dollars from this tour, but because of all the expenses that they incurred, that each guy only made like maybe you know a couple hundred thousand dollars. You know, like so like <laughs> they expected this to be like a big windfall, but you know it's that old story about like when you put a bunch of expensive things on your rider as a band, the venue charges you for that. Yeah, like you pay for, for that. So. Yeah, to have like the fancy meals by chefs and like the private jets and like the silk embroidered pillowcases and like all these unnecessary expenses, it, you know, it, it just killed them. And they go from there to try to make another record. I feel like there's like several aborted attempts to like to make another record. Like, didn't they try to do Human Highway again after uh, the Doom tour? Yeah, which is such a huge tactical error. I mean, if you can't get back together in the studio after years apart and have T tensions flare up. You don't want to do it after being on the road for two or three months in, you know, relatively confined space. I mean, that was just a bad idea from the start. They, yeah, they tried to do uh, Human Highway again. I think they went to, I think it was at, Grant, at, um, at Neil Young's Broken Arrow Ranch. And Crosby and Nash started fighting with Stills almost immediately. They were arguing about doing a uh, harmony part on the Stephen Stills song, Guardian Angel. And Stills got so angry that he took the tape master of their song, Wind on the Water, and just ripped Jesus. it apart with a razor blade. I mean, again. Which, I, I, like, I at mean, the beginning, when I said <laughs> that these guys are bitchy divas, like, I was not joking. Like, like, there are no divas bigger than these guys. Just insane behavior that they would do that. The, the story that gets me is about the Long May You Run record, which started out as a oh Stephen God. Stills and Neil Young album. They were going to make a duo record. And this was at the same time that Crosby and Nash were making a record called Whistling Down the Wire. And, uh, you know, Stills and, and Young are working together and they eventually decide, hey, let's bring Crosby and Nash into the fold. So they end up recording vocals for this Stills-Young record. And there's an idea, I think, for a moment that this might become a CSNY record. Um, but then, like, I forget what the particulars were exactly, but it was decided that, no, we're not going to make this a CSNY record. We're going to keep it a Stills-Young record. Crosby and Nash left to kind of finish their own record. And then, like, Young decided to wipe their vocals, Crosby and Nash's vocals, off this record. Like, why did he decide to do that? Like, was there some fight or something? Well, I think that Cros and Graham were called back by the label. Like, okay, you got to finish your record and start promoting this. So I think that they were called away. It wasn't that they stormed out. So Young was just mad that they left. I, it sounds like that. Yeah, it was just so pissed that they left in the, you know, maybe not the middle of it, but like when it wasn't completed yet that he wiped their vocals. Again, let's, let's repeat. Neil Young was upset that someone left early. Like, you know, can we just like marinate in the <laughs> irony of that for a moment here? Uh, you know, like Neil Young of all people, I feel like should understand if like someone has to leave a project early. But at any rate, he's mad. He wipes their vocals off the record. And like Crosby and Nash, I think understandably are very pissed off about that. And they're like, basically, screw these guys. We're not going to work with them again. Uh, 
But that was not true. Because <laughs> they were back in the studio with Stills uh, like very soon after that to work on the CSN record from 77. Oh, yeah. I think it was like months later. I mean, Neil famously crushed Stills' spirit by leaving him in the middle of the uh, Stills Young Band tour with the famous, you know, funny how things that start spontaneously in the same yeah. way, eat a peach, Neil telegram. Yeah, we're going to get into that a lot in our next episode. Neil Young just, like, traumatizing Stephen Stills over and over again. <laughs> but, yeah, like, he ditches Stills, and Stills is, like, I think Stills at one point said, like, you know, like, my life is over, or, like, my career is over. I have no future. I have no future. I so have no has, future. Was the so quote. he, like, you know, basically, like, hangs tail and goes back to uh, Crosby and Nash, and they make this record, CSN. And I feel like you and I disagree about this a little bit. I actually really like the CSN record from 77. It's the one where they're on the yacht. And it's like <laughs> it's a literal it is, yacht exactly. rock. Exactly, it is record. so on the nose with the yacht with the yacht rock thing because it's very smooth. It's very soft rock. It's very, I think, emblematic of like 1977, which was the year of Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Hotel California by the Eagles ended up. I think that came out at the end of '76, but it was like a huge seller in '77. And I really look at CSN as like the third record of that like LA rock triumvirate. Um, you know, you've got great songs on there. You have like Shadow Captain, which I think it's like one of the best David Crosby songs. That's like one of my favorite Cross songs for sure. And, you know, like Stephen Stills' Dark Star, I think is a great song. I actually really like the soft rock Graham Nash song, Just a Song Before I Go. I appreciate that for what it is. I really feel like that's maybe like their last great record. But I don't know. What do you think? You're not as big into that album. No, for me, that was, that just felt like, I mean, in a way, I understand that. It makes sense that they embrace the whole Yacht Rock thing. I mean, because I feel like the success of their first two records kind of laid the groundwork for all the, the sort of L.A. excess that was to come in the 70s. So it kind of makes sense that they ended up there. But I don't know. Something about it, it feels to me like that was the moment when they started becoming more of a nostalgia act. I mean, I, the, the soft rock sound for them, it, it felt like it felt too easy. I don't know. It, it's not. I prefer the Laurel Canyon kind of more acoustic vibe to the the just the song before I go or, or cathedral. Uh, I do like shadow captain. That is a great song, but it, I don't know. Just the, the soft rock thing kind of bums me out with them in the same way that like hotel California makes me uncomfortable because it, it does has that LA excess cocaine paranoia vibe. And when I think of CSNY, I don't want to think of that. I want to think of them in, in like, you know, in a hammock in Laurel Canyon, the sort of hippie idyllic setting. And so maybe that's why it just makes me sad. It's like later seasons of Mad Men when you see everybody's kind of like just looks bad. Like Pete Campbell's got like the receding hairline and stuff. And they've got all the like wide paisley ties and stuff. It just you think back to like how cool and slick and everybody was in the earlier season. I think that's how I feel about the CSN album. It just feels like you see how far they've come in this sort of uncomfortable setting that they're in now. And it just makes me nostalgic, I guess. Well, if you think CSN marked their decline, then I'm sorry to report that we've got a long way to go <laughs> like down slope with these guys, especially with David Crosby, because as we enter into the late 70s and early 80s, this is the time where Crosby really starts to fall into a bad way. And he discovers something that we like to call freebasing cocaine, um, which is a terrible thing for anyone to do. If you're listening, uh, this is my PSA announcement for this episode. Do not freebase cocaine. Do not really even snort cocaine. Avoid drugs if you can, but do not be like David Crosby as he was in the late 70s and early 80s because, yeah, he was in terrible shape at this time. 
And I mean, there's so many horrible stories that we could tell about Crosby at this time. Again, like I alluded to this earlier about how Crosby's habits became so bad uh, at one point that they had to set up like separate rooms, like in the studio or like off stage at concerts where Cross could just go and literally smoke cocaine during shows or like during recording sessions. Like he really was that dependent on this drug. And it seems like there were so many instances like through the 80s, like where he would relapse and then maybe try to go to rehab and then relapse again. Like so many instances. Like I didn't realize like how much uh, like he like he was like how many opportunities he was given basically to recover. And then like when he got into legal trouble he was given many chances to avoid jail time, and he just could not stop smoking the rock. No, I mean, Graham and um, and Jackson Brown staged an intervention at his house, and in the middle of the intervention, he ran off to go to the bathroom <laughs> to to free base, and they caught him. And that and that was when, you know, they were just like, Jesus Christ, I, I kind of give up. I mean, this is there's only so much that you as his friend can do. Yeah, and even his best friend Graham, they were trying to make a duo album together and they were having a jam session. It was going really well until uh, Cross's freebase pipe fell off an amp and fell on the floor and broke. And then Crosby stopped the session and went to go pick up the pieces. And Nash said, you know what? The, until that point, the music had always been first, regardless of, of David's personal problems. But at this moment, I knew I, I couldn't work with him anymore. And so that's when... Nash and Stills got together to try to make Daylight Again, which was their uh, duo album with the two of them. And the record company wasn't interested. They said, well, get Crosby back in and we can talk. But at this point, we don't really want a Stills yeah, Nash album Yeah, that's what at this point. I think, you know, why I said that thing before about why having each member's name in the band title really protected them from being replaced. Because, you know, for all intents and purposes, like Crosby, like, shouldn't have been on that record. Like, he was not in any condition to contribute to that album. Although he did actually end up adding a really great song to that record called Delta. I think one of the strongest songs on Daylight Again. Um, but for the most part, I mean, like, he shouldn't have been making records. He shouldn't have been touring. He should have been, like, you know, chained to a bed and, like, basically drying out and, and, and straightening out his life. But because of the power of the brand, like, he was brought back into the fold. And I know Crosby has talked about over the years about how he felt like, yeah, I feel like those guys cared about me. But I also know that they had to pay their bills. And, you know, if I wasn't in the band, you know, they weren't going to get the type of concert bookings or the kind of record deals that they would get if it was a Crosby, Stills, and Nash record. I have to say, too, though, like, when you listen to bootlegs from that time, like, I have a bootleg of uh, CSN from 1985 in St. Louis, and that was, like, I think right around the time that he went to jail. Like, pretty soon after that, I think he went to prison. And, again, this is in the middle of him, like, freebasing cocaine during shows. There's, like, this one example of, like, how, like, Crosby left a show to freebase cocaine and, like, I think Stills threw, like, a bucket of water on him. And then, like, Crosby walked out, like, drenched in water. Like, he was, like, kind of dazed. Watching him on stage in that area, like, the live video for Southern Cross, I mean, he just looks like he's got this thousand yards. He's not there. He just looks He looks horrible, but, like, horrible. if you listen to the bootlegs, it actually sounds pretty good. Like, I don't know, like, how much cocaine you have to smoke to ruin your voice, but, like, Crosby apparently didn't get to that threshold. Because his voice still sounds there. pretty good, even though he's, like, in a terrible way. Like I said, I think, was it in 85 that he went to jail, finally? I think, uh... Yes, I think it was the end of 85. I mean, he was a fugitive from the FBI. He, like, sold the last, like, valuable item that he had, which was a piano, and rented a plane to fly from California to Florida to try to get to his yacht. 
when he gets there, he was going to basically take his yacht and just spend the rest of his days at sea or something. I guess he hadn't really fully thought that one through. And then when he found his yacht, it was just in total disrepair and unseaworthy after just years of neglect. And he turned himself in and he went to prison, I think, for about a year, nine months or something like that. And he, he detoxed in prison. They didn't even give him an aspirin or anything, he would later say. Like, he just completely went through all that just on, like, a, you know, a prison bench. And then he ended up performing for the first time sober in, like, 20 years soon after he got out in August of 86. And, um, and he got back together with CSNY not long after. It was part of Neil Young's uh, promise, basically. They performed together. They did one song at, um, at Live Aid, and it was, it was a shambles. And Neil basically said, look, Crosby, if you can get your act together, I'll come back and we'll, we'll, we'll do something together. I wonder, like, when Neil Young said that, if he actually, like, thought that Crosby, yeah, like, I just wonder, because, yeah, like, when I read about that, it kind of feels like one of those promises where you're like, yeah, Cros, if you survive, which, yeah, yeah right, you won't. But, like, if you do... Yeah, sure, I'll play with you guys. Because, like, yeah, we'll talk. And we'll get into this in our Neil Young episode. But, like, he dissed those guys so much over the years. And, like, he obviously had his own thing going. I just feel like he wouldn't have otherwise felt a strong compulsion to play with those guys again. No. And and the results, American Dream kind of bears that out. There's not a lot of effort in there. And he didn't even bother to tour it. Yeah, and that record isn't great. And, I mean, like, when we look at, like, the 90s records that, like, CSN put out, like, I mean, like, Live It Up, that record. Which is like one of the worst album covers of all time. It's like, it's a shot of the moon and there's like these huge sticks and there's hot dogs on the sticks. And then there's like, it looks like there's like telephone operators climbing the poles on the cover. And like you see the planet Earth in the back. It's like, it makes no sense. Do you know what the, is there any kind of meaning to that? I've not been able to find anything. I would love to know. I was just like, oh yeah, like, okay, this this record's called Live It Up. We're uh, trying to assert that we're still a relevant band. Uh, we've had some problems over the years. What can we graphically use to represent <laughs> our sort of rising from the ashes, if you will? Oh, uh, how about some hot dogs on sticks on the moon? Like, oh, yeah, perfect. Perfect. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, it, to me, it just seems like no one gave a shit. And, and that's how it ended. That seems like yeah. the only reasonable explanation. So that record's pretty bad. Um, after the storm came after that, that's like pretty good record, I think. Like relatively speaking, like if you if you yeah. have low expectations, um, it's not too bad. Glenn Johns produced it, so I feel like a lot of these CSN records like sound bad production wise, and I think the production on that record's pretty good, relatively speaking. I remember being really disappointed by Looking Forward because that was like the first CSNY record since Deja Vu. And like Neil Young had a great 90s. And I, I think I was expecting it to sound more like a Neil Young record from the 90s. But like that's another one where uh, it just sounds kind of weak and a little too sort of like adult contemporary. Well, I think he came in late in the game and basically said, oh, yeah, I've got these two or three acoustic songs. You can just sort of like stick on it. And then so it was really like a CSN plus Y album, I feel like. there were, I don't think there was a lot of, of uh, collaboration going on there at all. It seems like too like, you know, one of the big splits that proved to be decisive in this band was they were going to do a covers record with Rick Rubin. Um, I think that was like in 2010. Like, I think they'd worked on it for a while and like they couldn't get it together mainly because like David Crosby didn't like Rick Rubin. Yeah, I guess he thought Rick Rubin was like too much of an autocrat to really work with. He just thought he, he completely owned every element of the creative process and felt stifled. Uh, uh, come I, on, as far dude. as I know... 
I don't think any of those have you heard any of those tracks? I don't think any of those tracks have ever. No, I haven't. I mean, like, like snuck out. you know, like in one respect, you're like, oh, a covers record. OK, that I mean, that that kind of speaks to artistic bankruptcy right there. But <laughs> right. it's also like Kras, like Rick Rubin, whatever you want to say about the guy, he has been involved in like some pretty high profile uh, comebacks, you know, and you would think that like a Rick Rubin CSN record it's going to get a lot more attention than like live it up or after the storm did, you know, I think that, that would have given them a pretty good bump, but uh, they just couldn't get it together. But I feel like that's just a precursor to like the big incidents that involved David Crosby that ended up really sort of self-destructing this band. And it just, I mean, it boils down to David Crosby talking like shit in interviews, right? I mean, like at least with the Neil Young, Daryl Hannah story. It's maybe the pettiest example of the fighting throughout this entire story. And the fact that it seems to be like responsible for the longest lasting schism between them all is blows my mind. You're right. It's just it, David Crosby was given an interview. It was after Neil divorced his wife, Peggy, his wife of 29 years. And he started dating actress Daryl Hannah. And David Crosby in September 2014 is giving an interview with the Idaho Statesman. And apparently these quotes were supposed to be off the record. That's what I, I later heard. But of course, they were so uh, inflammatory that they were, I guess, put in the interview. Crosby refers to Daryl Hannah as a purely poisonous predator. Uh, and and uh, which, you know, you don't say that about your friend's girlfriend, especially to an outlet, even if it is like supposedly off the record. Neil uh, goes on stage not long after this interview hits stands and tells the concert goer, CSMI will never tour again, ever. Uh, and soon after he makes that pronouncement, Crosby confirms that, that Neil is very angry with me. And he, he goes on this big apology tour. He's apologizing on Twitter and he goes on Howard Stern and says, you know, basically tries to make amends for it. He says, I'm screwed up way worse than that girl. Where do I get off criticizing her? She's making Neil happy. I love Neil and I want him to be happy. Daryl, if you're out there, I apologize. Where do I get off criticizing you? Yeah, but then he did the same thing to Graham Nash. Like Graham Nash, you know, ended up leaving his wife, uh, his longtime wife, Susan, I think her name was or is. And uh, he started dating a woman in her 30s, which, you know, look, you can criticize rock stars for doing that. It's a very rock star thing to do. Um, but he is not the first. Yeah, he's not the first to do it. And like David Crosby is not in a position to judge other people. But like apparently like he confronted Graham Nash about this or did he say something on stage even where he was like, well, I'm, you know, I haven't left my wife, you know, like Graham over here, like making a joke about it. Yeah, I think he made he made a joke about like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young said, well, at least I'm the one who's keeping my, to my marriage vows. Right. Which, you know, by the way, and again, I'm not trying to be judgmental here. I'm just bringing it up as a fact that like the woman that David Crosby is with, Jan Dance, they've been together for a long time, but like. I think Crosby was re responsible for, like, getting her addicted to drugs, like, for a long time. They had to, like, go through rehab together because they were in such a bad way. Like, they were freebasing, essentially, together, like, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, so, you know, again, maybe don't throw stones at people, especially at Graham Nash. Like, again, we've talked about how I feel like Graham Nash is, like, the nicest guy in this band. Like, one story that I forgot to tell earlier is that when Crosby was in such bad shape and, uh, you know, was basically selling off everything in order to get money for drugs, Graham Nash, like, very quietly bought Crosby song publishing, I think for, like, 25 grand. And then when Crosby got cleaned up, he sold the publishing back to Crosby. Like, he basically bought the publishing wow. so Crosby couldn't sell it off for drugs, which is, like, an incredible thing for a friend to do. And I think it speaks to, like, what kind of person Nash is and, like, how much he genuinely cared for Crosby. 
So after all of the crap that Nash had to put up with over the years, you know, for Crosby now to like be giving him shit about, you know, his relationship, it just must have been infuriating for him. And I know like he, there's a couple interviews that he's done. There's like one on YouTube where he is just irate about Crosby. He says like he tore the fucking heart out of the band and like, you know, like he distinguishes, he said he tore the heart out of CSN and he tore the heart out of CSNY, which uh, is just brutal. And, and like to see Graham Nash of all people angry, it just shows like how far he had been pushed, you know, over the course of like 50 years. Oh, yeah. He says, I've been there and saved his ass for 45 years and he's treated me like shit. And he's right. Yeah, it's awful. And so, you know, I feel like the story now that gets told is like the official end of the band occurred at. And of all places, a Christmas tree lighting ceremony at the White House, you know, which <laughs> it just goes to show like the most innocuous setting. You know, even that would be infused with drama by, you know, CSN. Because like they did this performance. At, what song were they doing? It was like, uh, do you remember? Is it Old Lang Syne? Old Lang Syne. Old Lang Syne. And like, you know, there was some issue with the monitors. They couldn't really hear each other. And it's I, bad. It's really bad. I think it's on YouTube. I think you can go on and watch it. it. It just sounds horrible. I know Crosby has talked about that being the end of the band. I don't know if they just kind of realized at that point that like, oh, we're not sounding very good. I mean, it sounded like there were all these other conflicts as well that were bubbling under the surface that really kind of, again, as Nash said, you know, tore the heart out of the band. Yeah, and the reference you made to Neil Young saying that Cross should write a book about like why all my friends hate me. That's kind of where we're at now with Crosby when he put out his documentary, Remember My Name, in 2019. It comes across as this like massive apology tour dating back to the birds of like everyone he's ever pissed off. So he, he's very open about how he can be. And, and now, most recently, he's just been sort of trying to make amends and uh, making overtures to the others to, to get the band back together for uh, political purposes to do uh, election stuff. I mean, he's sort of doing that, but then he also is, you know, he reiterates in every interview that he does that like he's in the middle of this great creative renaissance right now, like, which is true. Like, I think his first record in this run that he's put out lately was Cross. I think that came out in 2014. And that was his first solo record since, if I could only remember my name, it was like, what is that? Like, you know, 43 years after that record. And now he's just like put out a record almost every year. Like, and each one like really strong. Like, I would say that Crosby out of all these guys right now is making the best music. Like, by far. Oh, easily. Um, Here, if you listen, is an incredible album. So I think he wants to get the band back together, but he's also talked a lot about how he was sick of playing the hits over and over again and that he feels yeah. much more sort of creatively uh, satisfied on his own. So I don't know. Again, I go back to what that, you know, that psychiatrist said uh, that was quoted in David Brown's book that I think there's a, a questing quality to David Crosby He's searching for contentment, and he still hasn't found it. And, uh, you know, maybe he's just sort of destined to be that kind of guy. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world until it didn't. I came into my office. 
opened my email and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so this is the part of the episode where we talk about I guess the pro side of each part of the rivalry. So I guess with Crosby, we'll look at the pro Crosby case first. And I think for me, like, you know, Crosby is probably the most emblematic member of the band. Like he looks the most like the sixties, you know, he's got the bushy Mm. mustache and the long brown hair. I think he also in many ways is like the most unique of the band in terms of like his artistic sensibility. He has that sort of jazzy quality to a lot of his music. He uses like a lot of, you know, weird tunings. He's not really writing like the conventional pop songs that Graham Nash writes or, you know, that amalgam of folk and blues that Stephen Stills is involved in. Crosby really has his own sort of unique voice um, artistically. And again, you know, he is making the best music right now. I think his late career renaissance is incredibly impressive, you know, especially in the midst of all the drama that he's been in the middle of, you know, like he's really rededicated himself maybe more than he ever has in his life to like making great music. And, uh, you know, for an artist, his age, uh, that's really commendable. Like he's definitely not leaning on nostalgia. No, absolutely not. And getting back to what you said earlier too. I mean, what he brought musically to CSNY, I feel like is not discussed enough. I mean, Deja Vu and Guinevere, you're right, has this weird sort of jazz influence, but I also credit him as being sort of the chief vocal arranger of the band. And he came up with these, all the really unique harmony lines that aren't just like the normal chordal triads. I mean, all going in the same way that he does weird guitar tunings, he would find really unique ways to blend all their voices. That's so, so interesting. And it's funny that his voice is sort of the least distinct 
I think, of of the three. I mean, you've got kind of Stills anchoring it with this bluesy growl, and then you've got um, Nash's harmony, like razor sharp, cutting through on top. He just kind of has this, he's like the glue, I always thought, vocally, that holds it all together, where you almost don't notice it until it's not there, and then it feels hollow. So, I, yeah, I, I think that the vocal work that the band's known for, I really think he doesn't get enough credit for. And you're right, I just think he's the soul and spirit of the band. I feel like he brought the cred, the coolness. I think that his social circle and being kind of like, you know, the king of the L.A. scene at that time was really responsible for getting the band, which obviously had a tremendous amount of talent, to this higher level of the buzz that got everybody was excited about this band. All the cool people in L.A. were talking them up. They always talk about how when they were playing Woodstock, they had everybody in a semicircle behind them. Jefferson Airplane, the band, Hendrix, all kind of watching them with their arms folded, seeing what they could do. I think that Crosby was a huge part of that. I think because he was such a key figure in that social scene that when they exploded, they exploded even bigger because of that. So yeah, I think that he's really the spirit of the band. So when we go, I guess, to the pro stills, Nash and Young side, or like the anti-Crosby side of this uh, equation, look, I think for me, if you look at the story, it's pretty clear that Crosby is like a major pain in the ass. And like, if he was your friend or he was in your band, yeah, I, I don't think there's any reason why you would react any differently than like Roger McGuinn did or Graham Nash did or Neil Young or any of these people who came to turn against him. As I said before, I think there's something in David Crosby's personality that just craves attention. You know, that again is why he's so good on Twitter. He always has to have people <laughs> hanging on his every word and he feels bad if people aren't, you know, looking at him and, and giving him praise. So in order to do that, I just feel like he ends up hurting the people around him. And it, I think in the Neil Young story where he's like, you know, calling Daryl Hannah poisonous, you know, I think that was him trying to be a good interview. I think that was him trying to be compelling mm -hmm. and like not really thinking like what the weight of his words would be or like him making a joke at Graham Nash's expense about his recent divorce. It's like, he's trying to be funny. You know, he's trying to be provocative and like he hurt the people that were closest to him in the process of doing that. And it just seems like he can't help himself. You know, he can't help hurting those people even if he might know intellectually that it's like not the best thing for him to do. So, you know, even in a band like with as many egomaniacs in them as like CSNY, I feel like Crosby stands alone as like the king <laughs> egotist in this band. And um, while, like you said, I think it's helped the band a lot because, yeah, he was the king of L.A. And I think he was able to marshal a lot of resources because of that. It's also hurt him. A lot. And in a way, I feel bad for him, although at the same time, it's like he's brought a lot of this on himself. Yeah, I was trying to figure out if CSN would have continued in relative stability had they not welcomed Young in. I think Young probably hastened their demise a lot sooner. But I was trying to figure out, like, would things have gone almost as smoothly as they had for the first record that they made? And I just was thinking of Crosby's personality and not even to say his drug addiction, just his personality alone. And thinking, yeah, no, there would have been problems there fairly soon after, even if Neil hadn't been in there. Cross would have blown that shit up real quick. Yeah, and he certainly blew up their, I guess, legacy era, like when they were touring. And, you know, you could say that they weren't maybe terribly relevant creatively, but they were still making a lot of money on the road. But again, maybe that was a good thing. You know, I think from Cross's perspective, uh, as much as he might miss those guys, he's also going to say, like, well, I'm making great records right now. You know, I'm looking forward. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so there's lots of ways to look at that. But... You know, when we look at all these guys together, and I guess like, you know, what Kroz brings uh, to the table, I mean, I think ultimately like Kroz, like he is 
along with being the biggest like egotist in the band, I think he is like probably the biggest star, I guess, outside of Neil Young, you know, like in terms of like the original three Crosby certainly now is the most famous out of there. And as you said before, I think you made a really good point about how, like when you listen to the vocal blend, you don't necessarily notice Crosby right away, but like he is the glue of that harmony. And I think the uniqueness of his talent and his ability to be like a great compliment to the other people in that band, you know, there just wouldn't have been a CSN, I think, without Crosby. Yeah, I feel like the band gave him the perfect set of parameters to really excel and, and make good work because it was structured enough to give him a reason to work, which if you consider all the decades where he didn't put out any solo albums, it's a pretty good indication that he probably wouldn't have, he's not that prolific on his own. It gave him a reason to show up, but it was also freeform enough that he felt like he could experiment and try different ideas and also different incarnations like with Nash. Yes, but you know, it looks like at this point there will be no incarnations with anybody. I mean, do you I mean, do you have any hope that like they're going to forgive Crosby at some point and then and do something together? I I mean, I do have hope. I especially now with all the concerts being shut down, uh I I'm hoping that kind of when everyone is able to get out and be together again, they kind of use that as an opportunity to like, okay, l- let's all join together musically ourselves on stage and the community in front of us in the audience. I'm hoping. I don't know. It just it seems like that I know it's personal as opposed to well, some of the arguments before were more professional music-based and this is something so hurtful about somebody's romantic partner, but I hope that as they're getting up there in years, they can move past this. Yeah. He's apologized enough times. Yeah, well, we'll see if the hostility is a long time gone by that time and they're <laughs> able to come back together. Always have to work in the corny joke that's great. incorporating yeah, that's a song title at the end of another Ravels episode. Like we said, this is the first part of our Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young series. Uh, We're going to be talking about Stephen Stills next week, which I'm really excited about. That's going to be part two. And then in part three, it's going to be Neil Young. Uh, So lots of fun Laurel Canyon cocaine-fueled adventures ahead of us. I'm very excited to get into it. Until then, thanks for listening to another episode of Rivals. We will be back with more beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtalk. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned.
Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.